Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the Executive Director of the Henry Nouwen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nouwen, Now and Then. Our goal at the Henry Nouwen Society is to extend the rich spiritual legacy of Henry Nouwen to audiences around the world. We invite you to share the daily meditations and these podcasts with your friends and family. Now let me take a moment to introduce today's guest. I always enjoy interviewing people who were students of Henry Nouwen, people whose lives and subsequent work were impacted by their time spent with Henry Nouwen. Bob Massey certainly fills that bill. An award-winning author and activist, Bob is an experienced and effective leader on climate change, corporate power, and social justice in America. I'd like you to meet Bob Massey. Bob Massey, you've had such an interesting background. You studied history at Princeton, then you went to Yale Divinity School to explore faith, and then you went to Harvard Mm -hmm. to get a degree in business. How did this Mm -hmm. rich and varied background come together? How did you find the unique path God has had for your life? Uh, Well, my life is like everyone's life. Uh, I think that you start off and you're trying to figure out... um, what your values are, what your purpose is, uh, what you care about most deeply. And um, my childhood was an unusual childhood in that I was born with a serious uh, chronic illness, genetic illness called hemophilia, which is a bleeding disorder. Um, uh, Your blood does not clot uh, quickly. Uh, But it's not about cuts. It is about... um, joint bleeding, and so it affects your ability to walk, and much of my childhood I could not walk. Um, But in the process of growing up with that challenge, um, first of all, I had to try to just figure out how to grow up and and, uh, become an adult and what I want to study, all the regular things that people think about. But because of my experience with... um, uh, I was kind of on a middle ground, that is, in some ways, uh, living a a privileged American middle-class life. My parents were journalists and eventually writers, and um, so we had all of that uh, uh, access and so forth that made it possible for me to get decent medical care. Um, but at the same time, I really strongly identified with people who were excluded or rejected um, because I was kind of like a chameleon. I, if I wasn't having any trouble walking or anything, I looked like someone who had no disability um, for many years. And then, but when I had a challenge, I was in leg braces or wheelchair, and then people would react to me very differently. And so I had. I began to realize that I wasn't the only person who experienced uh, very, had very different experiences from people, depending on what, uh, how they judged you within the, even the first seconds. So that kind of uh, double life of, on the one hand, fitting in uh, sometimes, and then on the other hand, uh, being rejected quite decisively, and other times, uh, may, I think gradually. Uh, brought me to uh, think about that as a much more universal and uh, deeply spiritual challenge. How do you how do you live in a life? How do you live a life of, of value uh, in the face of, of those kinds of uh, difficulties? And so I began paying much more attention to uh, people with other kinds of struggles. There were struggles of economic struggles, or justice, or other healthcare problems, or poverty, or and so uh, my life just kept sort of expanding, uh, you know, moving from uh, an inner uh, sort of circle of ideas and then expanding outward uh, to more and uh, more desire to engage with people and to understand God. Um, so that, that was, and, and so all of these things are happening at the same time. And, um, and then in my, you know, as a teenager in college, uh, this uh, hunger for God, this desire to understand why we're here and uh, how we can, as I graduate, how we can serve, how we can support each other. Uh, this was a big jumble of thoughts in my head that I started, uh, you know, fairly young, uh, 12, 13, 14. 
And by the time I was in college, uh, these were becoming even more important to me and began to guide um, what I wanted to learn and where I wanted to contribute. It, it, it is it is quite a background. I even read that because of your having to have blood transfusions, you ended up with HIV and with, uh, uh, I guess, also hepatitis. Did you also get that? And then eventually you end up with a liver transplant, and this solves some of this. But that must have been pretty profound to have those that experience in the midst of a time in which it was rocking the world. Can you tell me a bit about that? Well, so you just compressed uh, very well, I might add. Uh, you know, 60 years of experience. So, um, And so my medical challenges have been obviously the heart of uh, of who I am and how I've coped with life. And I, uh, and I was very fortunate in that my parents, uh, although they, you know, came from modest backgrounds, my mother was the first person in her family to go to college. Uh, my father had been a scholarship student, um, but they had, uh, the ability to, um, think through problems and gain access to, resources because they're very persistent and their love and support of me uh, as a very young child gave me a kind of foundation uh, of affection and, and, and commitment that really um, provided, I've obviously done a lot of reading and thinking about that, but it gave me a kind of resilience uh, to face these different challenges and to learn from them and move forward. Wow. You you didn't initially go chasing after faith in all of that, but it does sound like a wonderful, solid, uh, loving uh, basis that that enveloped you, that gave you the strength. Because I, I look at your life, and I'm I'm terribly impressed, to be quite honest. I see all of these things that you've championed, and you championed things way before I think I was recognizing how important they were. I mean, you you have championed creation and, and and the importance of of uh, our footprint upon this planet you you've you've championed mm-hmm. some very interesting things uh, I, I was moved by how that's all come together with you but maybe we should go back a little bit I want to go back into how did Henry Nouwen show up in your life when did that happen <laughs> and, and what difference did that man make well um so when I was in college and starting to think about more deeply what was I going to do next, I had always thought I might do something like law school and then go into politics, or uh, just because I cared so much about what was going on with other human beings with the planet. But I began to feel a tug away from like, law school and so forth, and I was uh, wondering, you know, what's the purpose of life? What's the meaning of life? Anyway. I was talking to a chaplain uh, at my college, and he gave me a book, um, which I looked through. And uh, it was sort of an odd book. It's a lot of photographs. I'm very open about its face, and I took it and skimmed it and forgot about it. Um, but I had a kind of conversion or reconversion experience between my junior and senior year and uh, in college, and decided to go to divinity school. And when I got to Yale Divinity School, um, which I had learned about from a young pastor I'd met many years before, um, I showed up and I we did a retreat before the first uh, uh, weeks of class. And at one point I found myself, uh, the new students had swum out to this rock and this sort of odd uh, fellow also swam out. And so I'm sitting there in my bathing suit and he's sitting there in his bathing suit and we're singing songs and hymns, and I'm wearing real stuff. Um, I didn't learn uh, for, it took me a long time to figure out who he was. I eventually figured out he was on the faculty because he was about 25 years older than me. And I realized that he was a Catholic priest. I'd never really gotten to know a Catholic priest, uh, although I had done some things uh, within Catholicism. And eventually I learned that he was a very gifted guy, and then I learned he was famous. Um, but it all kind of came backwards. And so um, I was very drawn, as so many people have done, to, uh, to him and to the, the quality of his faith, the depth of his faith, the, 
the intimacy uh, of his faith in so many ways. And so I began going. At that time, there was a Eucharist um, every day at 5 o'clock in a tiny little chapel that was called the Crypt, if I remember correctly, um, at Yale Divinity School, and I began showing up. And there would be 10 or 15 people, and Henry led this uh, every day. And so I just would go and listen to him preach. But as I listened to him preach, uh, all the qualities that uh, people have come to know about Henry began to show themselves right in front of me. And I was deeply moved by um, by what I sensed was a different kind of faith than I had been used to. I still thought church is a place you went and sat in a pew and listened to people say things that they then didn't do. Um, so the hypocrisy of the church had uh, annoyed me as a young man, but this man spoke uh, in a very heartfelt way. And so that's how I began to know him, and then over many years, you know, I took some of his courses. I was a research uh, uh, student for him. I helped uh, edit his book on going to Latin America as a summer job. Um, I, you know, I did many, many things, and he became increasingly a, a close personal friend, and um, and sort of it went from there. And we were, I was very fortunate that we gradually got to know each other at some depth, and um, he just became part of my uh, life, my personal life, as opposed to you know academic life. Um, and it's in that way over about twenty years that I had the chance to learn from him and um, uh, share my ideas and see what he thought of others. So it, it, it emerged kind of organically um, from all of our encounters over those years. I loved reading. You you wrote a chapter in the book, uh, Befriending Life, Encounters with Henry Nowen, and you wrote a chapter. In fact, I think it might even be the very first one in the book. And you, it's mm-hmm. called God's Restless Servant. And I loved reading it. It was, it was very moving. I'd encourage people to get this book because it's, it's kind of insights into Henry through the eyes of those who knew him as a friend. And I think that's probably one of the first things that became really evident for his students, that he was quite prepared to be a friend, to be open, to be available, to, be, to somehow be a part of their life. But for me, as I was reading what you were writing, I... I what I found in it was, you know, sort of, I got the feeling that somehow by the way he was living and teaching, that he was teaching you how to be a follower of Christ. Can you, do you, mm-hmm. do you recall in a way how that came alive to you through Henry? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the lessons that uh, Christians need to uh, review every day and reinforce and support in each other is... Um, uh, the message of the gospel that uh, we are forgiven, that we live a life of grace due to the love and commitment of God. And Christ, as the form in which God manifested uh, himself, herself, in life, uh, in, in our human history. So um, I had grown up with uh, essentially a heresy that dominates the Church, which is um, that God loves you if you do well. And uh, so if, just like if you took an exam, got a good grade, you did well. And so the love of God was conditional on us being uh, good little students or good little people. Um, and what occurred to what what hit me uh, was that, no, our, our, the love of God is not conditional on, behavior, on our behavior. It is uh, free, uh, a free gift. Um, and this the consequence of this idea, which really began to enter my heart and soul before I met Henry, but he began to give me many concrete uh, examples. And one thing I want to say is that Henry was a walking contradiction. I mean, so <laughs> there are many things we say about we say about Henry um, about how wonderful he was, but the truth was that he often disobeyed his own rules. I mean, and then he was honest about that, rules or guidance or principles. So, uh, you know, he was always talking about being quiet and being interior and, you know, the, um, the downward mobility and hiddenness. And, and yet, every time I turned around, he was in front of some crowd of 400 people and <laughs> traveling to 
three cities in two days. And uh, similarly, you know, he talked about being a friend, but sometimes he was a crappy friend. I mean, he just sort of got distracted or fell off the radar. And then he would suddenly reappear. So I think what was fascinating for me and for so many of you is that in his honesty, uh, in his restlessness, as you referred to, he was constantly reflecting on his failures and his incapacity. And so in some ways, he was this wonderful blend of Catholic theology and Protestant theology, Catholic in his uh, deep understanding of vocation, his understanding of the role of Scripture and of the role of, uh, of uh, the Spirit, uh, his understanding of the Incarnation, I mean, very Catholic in some ways, but his emphasis on the power of grace and the power of love as a form of liberation and freedom, not just individually, but also politically or uh, spiritually for whole communities. This was uh, an incredible experience because I had, as I mentioned briefly, I had worried that although the church writ large, I was from the Episcopal Church, but any church, you walked in, you heard all these wonderful words, you're told to love your neighbor and to visit those in prison and give, you know, give uh, the thirsty something to drink and to do justice and, uh, and seek mercy, all of these things. And then, then the people would stream right out of the church and not do any of it. So like a lot of uh, people, especially young people, I thought, uh, you know, the church was a place for people who said things that in order not to do them. Uh, there's a funny cartoon I saw some years ago of a man walking in front of a church and uh, and there's a young pastor uh, pushing a lawnmower back and forth and the man on the street calls out to the young pastor and says, Pastor, you know, I would never join the church because it is full of hypocrites. And the pastor cheerfully says, yep, and always room for one more. <laughs> so... <laughs> and that's, um, so, you know, I got over the sense that the church was about, or God was about, um, you know, the big school teacher in the sky or the moralist or the this and that, to something much more radical, which is that we've been given the gift of life and we've been brought into community with each other and we've been given freedom of choice. And we've been given freedom from judgment in very profound ways. What do we do with all those gifts? How do we respond to them? What is God actually calling us to do? And how do we d distinguish what the gospel, in my judgment, really says from the way it's been distorted and manipulated, either unintentionally or as a form of seeking and um and invoking power over others. So when I actually started reading the gospel and reading it uh, and listening to Henry, it became evident to me that Jesus' greatest frustration was not with sinners, although he cares a lot, and it is, but with people who pretend that their holiness is a weapon that they can use against other people. I'm, you know, like the uh, a Pharisee and the tax collector, um, and many other examples. So for me, it was the radical nature of addressing, of giving us the strength and the freedom that the gospel offers, um, so that then we can uh, answer God's call to uh, about justice and mercy. So it answered the problem that I thought it was ignoring, and I began to feel that uh, people especially me, really had very little understanding of of this. You know, I had a kind of loose uh, cultural understanding of what Christianity was. It wasn't very attractive. But the gospel of peace and transformation and power and reconciliation um, and gratitude, these are all at the heart of the gospel. And that's what I was seeking, and I knew that's what a lot of people were seeking. But Henry had thought about this and lived it for many more years than I did. So he became a natural uh, teacher in every way, in the way he acted, in the way he succeeded, in the way he failed, um, in his humanity, uh, which included amazing gifts of compassion 
and some, you know, very normal human, human irritating qualities <laughs> that just that showed that he was not setting himself up on a pedestal far above all of us and, you know, exercising judgment on us in God's name. That was the opposite of what he believed. So anyway, I hope that, so his theology, uh, his personality, his gifts captured me where I was at that moment. And then, and also gave me a feeling that I didn't need to become someone else, that God had given me a set of gifts and challenges and that I could, I could, uh, respond to God's call not by trying to become something that wasn't real anyway, but being most genuinely uh, living a life of love and forgiveness. Now, I fail at it all the time. I'm, you know, I'm terrible at it. But Henry helped me see the freedom uh, that we have to go ahead and live the life for which we were intended. Well, I, it's interesting because, um, you know, just in, in kind of rereading your story that you wrote in Befriending Life, uh, I could hear mm-hmm. that there were moments that he brought encouragement into your life to go forward. And it, it is interesting, isn't it? I bet he was the first Catholic priest that you were kind of interacting with. And, because I know, for example, he was, I guess he and Margaret Farley were the first Catholics to come on to the staff of, or onto the teaching staff of Yale. Uh, and uh, it was interesting because there was a wonderful bigness in him and a great inclusion. And I'm sure that they were bringing together those gifts of contemplation and action were part of what yeah. I think was passed on to you. Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, at some time now or in the future, I'd love to hear your own faith journey and, and how Henry played a role in that. I guess the, I think he like Jesus, taught both through his strength and through his fragility. And that's where the concepts like being a wounded healer and uh, the things um, or the ideas in his book, Reaching Out. By the way, Reaching Out was the book that the chaplain at, at, in college had handed me. Wow. And I came upon it later, and I thought, wait a minute, this book that someone gave to me was written by this man who's now a friend of mine, but I didn't make the connection until I found the book. So anyway. Well, it's, uh, I, yeah. I found it so interesting when I was reading your story to realize there came a mm-hmm. moment, and this seemed to me to be like a pivotal moment for you when you were thinking about going into politics and really wondering whether this was a temptation or a calling. Right. And and right. you called on Henry for that. By, by the way, our audience is probably most of us know Henry through his books. We've not had the privilege of, of knowing him as a teacher in the way that you have. But it it's insightful because I think as we read the books, we discover there's a person who's being very, very honest about not just everything that's working for him, but also everything that's not working. And I think people tend to read Henry and go, me too. Somebody has just read what's really going on on the inside of my life. But take me back to that moment. You gave Henry a call, as I recall, when you were contemplating about whether to go into politics. What? How did he uh, speak into your life at that moment? Well, it's. Uh, I will tell you that story. I just want to give you a little of the context. So, you know, I'd gone to, first of all, um, I had gone to uh, Yale Divinity School because I had known of uh, various people who had done joint degrees, like joint law and divinity degree, um, and there are a number of people who had been in politics who did that. And so my thought was, well, I feel this, I'm drawn to these different worlds, and I've been really pretty much taught that you're not allowed to do that, particularly as a white preacher, um, you know, black clergy play an even bigger role in their communities because so many other forms of African-American leadership were denied. But in the white churches, you know, you're supposed to sit off in a corner and talk about the future or something abstract and not get involved with the injustices uh, and the suffering and the outrages that we're surrounded by and that are preventable. So I was, I was uh, torn between that. So I went to Yale Divinity School, not at all sure that I wanted to be ordained or anything like that. And also not sure that law was the right place because I was really interested in, uh, in the economy. That is the, 
stark differences between uh, the, the poor and the rich and the corruption of our hearts that can happen when we become entangled in problems of wealth and so forth. So I was very interested in all that. And I went through divinity school, uh, sort of choosing courses with the mind of, first of all, trying to answer a, a question of calling. Do I want to be a parish minister and, you know, strive for some kind of leadership within the administration of, of the church or who knows? Um, or, uh, or not. What was I even doing? <laughs> and Henry was very sympathetic to that. And it's one of the reasons that he invited me to edit this book, Gracias, which was about confronting poverty in Latin America in the, in the 80s. And um, so he tried to support me and encourage me. And he told me not to worry too much about the ordination questions or whatever. And But as I got... Uh, uh, you know, I graduated from uh, divinity school, and eventually I was ordained. And uh, I took a year and worked in Washington for a while uh, for Ralph Nader. Um, and so I got to look at issues of uh, corporate power, or uh, you know, the economic uh, structures that aren't working very well for a lot of people. And so it was in that context I had uh, moved to Massachusetts a couple of years before with. Uh, my wife, and um, I had been pastor, and I had decided, and it's such a strange thing, but I decided to go to Harvard Business School because I was tired of people telling me that I didn't know anything about economics or business, and therefore I couldn't really comment on them. And I got into HBS with a full scholarship, and I thought, well, all right, um, sort of be careful what you wish for. Um, and after that, after I completed my doctorate, I was invited to teach at Harvard Divinity School, where I uh, taught on these crossover courses. So I taught about the about apartheid in South Africa. I taught about conflict uh, and uh, conflict resolution. I taught courses. I taught a course at the time called "The Church, Economic Power, and Social Change." Um, and as I was going through all of this, there was always the question: Do I go and become an academic, or do I go and serve a church, or what do I do? Anyway. From that context, which was some years after I'd completed Yale uh, Divinity School, I felt this, and I had spent uh, most of, uh, well, six months in South Africa as a Fulbright scholar with my wife and two little boys, and that was the period when South Africa was going through an enormous set of changes, rewriting its constitution, and uh, and I was there, and I met, and I was there to first of all, write my senior thesis, uh, my doctoral thesis, and then I eventually started working on a very long book on the same topic, on the U.S. and South Africa, which had many moral questions, many political questions, and uh, economic questions. In fact, I used to joke, uh, you know, my family used to joke, they'd say, this is Bob's book about everything. And it's <laughs> true, you know, my book about everything. And then I realized when I got back from South Africa that democracy was this alive and, and engaging and critically important uh, world and, and vision in South Africa. And in the United States, we'd become incredibly cynical uh, and had lost faith in uh, many of the instruments of democracy. And uh, so, it, you know, and we were still struggling with those same problems, many of which are worse. But so finally, I began to think about running for office. I put this into the, my prayer life. I had a very um, rigorous uh, prayer life, except for when it wasn't rigorous. But, it, you know, I was really asking God. And eventually, through that prayer and process of discernment and a whole lot of stuff I did to try to find out whether I was being tempted into something that would destroy me, um, and destroy my good intentions, or whether this was something unique that I, with my weird set of experiences and personality and all that, whether this was right. So, uh, so finally, we get to the story. I uh, decided to run for lieutenant governor of Massachusetts, and that sounds like a big heavy lift uh, if you've never been in politics. But if you know about Massachusetts politics, uh, the position of the lieutenant governor is a strange one. And it doesn't have that many qualifications you know, that you have to have 
Um, and I realized that I could go around the state and talk about issues of justice and reconciliation and climate change and all those things. So I, I jumped in. But as I was getting ready to jump in, I called Henry, and he was the last person I wanted to talk to. I mean, I literally did, but I chose to talk to because I thought Henry was going to kind of lecture me on, you know, oh, Bob being a priest, you know, for Jesus is the highest calling in the universe, and why are you giving up, and I'm disappointed in you, and blah, blah, blah. That's what I thought he would say. And when I... Uh, called them and I said, well, Henry, I'm doing something that I hope is what God intends, and uh, I've been praying about it, um, and uh, I'm going to run for lieutenant governor. And he had this sort of uh, life, low, low laughter, you know, chuckled, and he said, well, you know, it was old Doc Jackson, you know, I've been waiting for you to do this for a long time. And I <laughs> said, what do you mean? And he said, well, it's been clear that this is you know, these are your gifts, and this is what, I mean, everybody who knows you, Bob, and especially after the years of conversation that we've had, this is obviously what you should do. And what's your address again? And I said, uh, I gave it to him, and he sent me my first check. Oh, <laughs> isn't that great? He sent, he sent me $1,000, which was the limit at the time, um, and to get $1,000, from Henry Nowen to do something that I thought he would condemn or be disappointed with just an astonishing affirmation uh-huh. of all the things that you and I have been talking about, that I was, I could dare to be the person that God uh, was calling me to be. And if it turned out that he wasn't calling me to do that, then it would become a mechanism for doing something else. And I should just say that, that I lost, I won that primary, but I lost the general election. But because of losing that election, I eventually became the head of an organization called Ceres, which brought religious pension funds and others to work uh, to push companies to address major problems like climate change and racial discrimination. So it became a path to something I simply couldn't have imagined, but I had to commit to, you know, I had to start climbing the mountain before I could see what was on the other side of it. And... uh, and so Henry was, you know, basically saying to me, go ahead, be the person, you know, once you have done, once you have asked God as honestly and openly and persistently as you can, what is it, uh, what should I be doing? My actual prayer in all of these uh, times was, Lord, I wish to serve you, what should I do? And I actually experienced, I wouldn't say like a voice, but I began to experience a sensation of a response, which was a very simple one, which was, then do this. Meaning, well, if you're so interested in serving, I've given you all these, uh, I've given you a toolkit, now get get out there and get busy. And, um, in other words, you've done, you've investigated your inner life and you've put it before God. And if it turns out to all be a big mistake, so what? You're still forgiven. You can find other ways uh, to serve. Uh, but let's stop talking about this. Why don't you get busy? It was kind of the sensation I got uh, in my prayer life. And it was very much echoed by what Henry said. So. That that was a key thing. So I jumped in, and you know, it was insane. But I actually won that election. And um, but you know, we were running against an incumbent, and I got beaten. But uh, just to link it back to my um, health experiences, you know, I think one reason that I wanted to be so public is that I'd been so, uh, in many ways, so hidden, uh, so cut off. And so part of my desire, if I'm, you know, being really honest, was. I want people to like me. I want to go out and talk to people. I spent so much time at home recuperating, and this would give me the opportunity to meet thousands of new people and to engage with the critical moment, the critical questions of the day. And I should stop running away from that. I should stop using ministry or Jesus as some way to, uh, you know, tell people, don't worry about me. I'm not going to be one of those annoying folks who urges you to change your life. Um, <laughs> and I realized that that's, that's, that is what I'm supposed to be doing. I mean, 
with as much generosity, spirit, or whatever as you can. But I am, at my core, prophetic. I mean, in that sense, you know, if there's the pastoral side and the prophetic side, I have a very deep pastoral side and have served in churches in that capacity and loved it. But for me, the scale of our problems, the urgency of our problems, and the failure of us to lead, because we're scared of this, that, or the other, seemed increasingly crazy. And so it was with Henry's support that I kind of came face-to-face with who I uh, uh, who I was intended to be. I was in my mid-30s, and it was kind of either you're going to do it or you're not. And very strangely, I came to the conclusion that I was. And that was very much uh, because of Henry and others. But Henry who uh, gave me that spiritual backbone to step forward. There's something very empowering about the reality we're all so uniquely made. It's not like we're cookie-cutter mm-hmm. Christians in any way, but thank goodness you took on what you did. I've, I've just been so impressed with the list of things that you've been involved in and at the sense in which they were they were about justice in the world. They were about how do we bring justice to bear on, on the economy. Um we talked yesterday, and I wanted to bring this to the fore. We talked about how would we relate Henry now into today. Today, there are ways in which Christianity is dismissed. What do people who go deeply into their faith have to offer today? We're in a very unique time. Well, I think people should calm down. I mean, um, what do I mean by that? I mean that many of the dilemmas that we put in front uh, of ourselves we put in front of ourselves. In other words, um, let's see if I can explain this. You know, we we are very fearful creatures. Uh, we're fearful when we come into the world as children because the world is so overwhelming. And then we have to make all these complicated decisions about the morals or purpose or this or that or the other. And, um, and we've been taught to be afraid of making mistakes. Um, and we cover that up with a lot of other stuff. We cover it up with our possessions and our popularity and our, you know, whatever it is, um, our addictions of various kinds. And, you know, one of the things I think that, uh, that God, and God's wisdom, um, and as a Christian, I can say through Christianity, but I know God's presence throughout the universe and throughout the world, but you know, you just don't have to worry about as many things as we choose to worry about. I mean, it's sort of like if, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, and that's a very profound form of freedom. Like, for example, you go out and you run for office and you make some mistakes or you say something stupid or you don't win. And then, and then what is it? I mean, I, I ran for governor two years ago. Now we're 25 years later. And, you know, people would say, uh, well, you know, aren't you afraid that you might lose? And I said, look, and then, so what? I mean, um, if I lose, the only thing that will have happened is that I won't be governor. And I'm not governor now. So how how terrible is that? I'm just, you know, I'm taking an opportunity to talk about what I about what I think so many of us care about, but we often neglect to talk about because we're afraid of what people will think of us. So I think now you want to add to that that the world is, uh, you know, as creation is groaning in agony. I mean, we're destroying the planet for idiotic and unnecessary reasons out of fear, out of greed, out of stupidity, out of uh, cruelty. Um, we're destroying each other. Um, we're you know, it's heartbreaking to me. Uh, almost everything that happens uh, within the human domain is caused by our own fears and our own uh, lack of trust in each other or in God and so forth. And, you know, the Christian message is there is nothing to fear. I mean, that's why when all of the angels uh, appear in the gospel stories or any other stories, first thing they say, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And to go back to Paul, you know, um, there's nothing that can separate us. And that includes death. And one of the things I think is really wrong with our society, 
uh, our modern society is just sort of utterly terrified and primitive uh, in thinking about death. And so what do we do? We, just, we pretend it's not, it doesn't exist while at the same time we're fascinated uh, by violence and, um, and by death. Uh, so that, you know, we just seem incredibly ill-equipped to face life as it really is. And, um, and there's, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to tell a story that I, when we spoke yesterday that, um, if you, if you don't mind about coming to this realization in a new way. So when I was probably in my early forties, um, the, uh, uh, Senator John Heinz, uh, the Republican senator from uh, Pennsylvania, uh, was killed in a plane crash, um, in a mid-air plane crash. And for various reasons that have to do with my parents and others, uh, I had come to know Senator Heinz and his um, and his family. And when he died, and I knew his sons, and when he died, I wrote his widow and said, you know, this is obviously an immense and unknowable tragedy, but I'd like to remind you that we are in Easter season, and the core message in Easter is that love and God are stronger than death. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, but even the thing we fear the most um, can be accomplished. Um, and I just hope that as you go through this, uh, this extraordinary suffering, that you will allow people to to minister to you and allow people to, to help you. Anyway, because of that letter, I suddenly found myself invited to uh, participate in uh, Senator Heinz's funeral at the National Cathedral. And I was to read some prayers. But, you know, so there I am. I'm sitting in this cathedral that holds 3,000 people. And I'm waiting for the service to begin. And I'm looking out, and what do I see? I see everybody that you see in the newspaper every day. I mean, the President of the United States, George H.W. Bush, the entire Supreme Court, all the members of the Senate, pretty much the whole House of Representatives, every, everybody that in America, when it comes to politics, were considered powerful and, you know, famous. And, and at the beginning, I thought, well, you know, look at all this power. It's amazing. But as the service unfolded, and you heard the opening words, I am the resurrection, I'm the life. And you looked at the faces of all these famous people, including, you know, I'm just 15 feet from the president, um, and former presidents, and others. I realized that they were kind of lost. I mean, this extraordinary man, handsome and wealthy, and, you know, didn't, I didn't share all of his politics. He was, a, he was a good man. He had suddenly been ripped out of our universe um and disappeared and they had nothing to hang on to they just looked like terrified people who could not handle how immense this was and so it was a kind of shift if you can imagine one of those balances you know the power of the world was present at the beginning but over time it diminished into a small skittish little uh a group of people and the majesty and power of the affirmation of God's uh, nature as, as creator, as redeemer, as sustainer became evident right there, at least in front of my eyes. And I realized, mm -hmm. yeah, you can be anything you want. You can have any title in front of your name you want, and you can exercise that in the end. We're mortal and we're broken, and uh, we need to be freed. Uh, from those those fears, and that, that recognition has never left me. Uh, it's very much consistent with the side of things that Henry talked about experiencing. But you know, in the end, we're talking about something so much more infinitely vast and powerful and healing than what we're familiar with. That it's uh, it offers a, a huge restorative power, not just for individuals, but that we can share, that we can. Um, you know, uh, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And that's one of the core things. So that's an example of, you know, experiencing the, the reality, power, and strength uh, of the gospel in real human life 
that we go sailing by on TV and, you know, that's, that's silly stuff on my computer. I mean, you go sailing by all that stuff. But the reality of life is filled with a dignity and beauty and strength that, that we neglect to recognize uh, or that we don't know how to recognize. Anyway, you've got me up in the pulpit now. <laughs> Preach it, brother. My goodness. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I have seen in your life, obviously, you cared about economic disparity. And we are living in a very interesting moment with a, a protest that's not just captured America, but captured the world. Uh, a response to, to a, a death that was visible to all and unjust, unjust. And we have been in the habit of policing poverty rather than problem solving right. it. What can you say to this time that we're going through? And what are you, what would you say to those people that are on the street and protesting and, and I hope it's not going to pass I hope it's not a moment I hope it's really the beginning of a new era well the first thing I would say is be not afraid I mean we've gone through human history is actually remarkably short and we've gone through some truly awful uh, periods but we're still here and we're unfinished and the call um, that I was talking about brief before of you know, that there's a calling for justice. We're invited, we are asked, we are summoned to serve, um, to bring justice into the world. But we also are offered the gift of mercy. So, you know, this isn't uh, one thing that happens and then it falls off the news. These are eternal problems, and you can find them in uh, Hebrew Scripture. You can find them. And, and so, you know, Yes, we are now in the middle of not an entertainment culture or a greed culture. We're, we have to focus on a justice uh, culture. And people have not been willing to do that. And in fact, we've spent an enormous amount of time constructing arguments why everything uh, that is is the way it should be. A lot of economics is simply justifying inequality. Um, and, you know, that's shocking, but we do it. So, But every now and then, and my wife uses the term, we face a reckoning, you know, we were suddenly like all of those words and excuses and all that stuff falls away and we get to see and kind of make in clarity what is it that we're actually saying and doing. And uh, the answer is not enough. And in fact, the outrage uh, that people are feeling is not only legitimate, it's long overdue. Um, however, you, you expressed a Concerned that it could all get shoved back under the rug or under the bed and uh, forgotten. And obviously, that's what a lot of people would like to happen, is to have it all go away. Or to pretend that this is all somebody else's mistake or, you know, whatever. But um, I, I would say that this reckoning and this moment of calling is, you know, what are we going to do individually? How are you going to allow this moment to change you and to change the world that that you live in, that we live in. And, uh, or are you going to just, you know, go back down the gopher hole and say, wow, that was awful. I hope I never have to deal with that again. So there are these moments, and this, I think, is, uh, we see this in the life of Jesus. I mean, when I first read about Jesus, I expected him to be this really sweet guy who went around urging everybody to love each other and, you know, walking around in his nightrobe and, but he's not like that. He's a passionate uh, warrior of the spirit, so to speak, for justice, for mercy, for honesty, for clarity, and for healing. So I, you know, I, uh, I also think that the political situation in the United States is shocking. I mean, we're betraying our secular principles as well as our religious principles. And without getting directly into politics, we have to reaffirm what is we believe in? Or the United States is going to be a little 250-year-old blip uh, in human history that will be forgotten. And if it's forgotten because we couldn't live up to our own principles, then perhaps it should be forgotten. And we're being tested right now. Um, so that's kind of how I view it. But I want to go back to do not be afraid. Um, yes, what's being done is horrific. And the anger that comes from recognizing how long and persistent this has been is legitimate. But we still have a long way to go, and we have a long way to go with each other. And that's what I think, you know, we're called to do. And Henry 
was often invited to sit in a nice little religious box where he said nice things to nice people, and they all went away thinking, boy, that was sweet. And they don't hear the calling uh, that I think Henry did everything to try to point to. This isn't just about receiving something nice from God and then you go home, like from a birthday party. No, it is about committing to a way of life that resonates with the love that created the whole uh, universe. And, you know, it's nothing short of that. And there's nothing more exciting than that, even if it's incredibly painful. I want you to tell me just uh, briefly so that our audience can can tune into this, because you're doing some exciting podcasts on video right now. What What's the, how can people see those? We'll put a link in our notes to them, but what do you call them? The podcast, which is a video podcast, you can watch us talking or you can just listen to them on, the, on various streaming. It's called Creating the World We Want. And this is where the work that I do and my wife's work, my wife's a designer and an architect, and often our failure to make changes because we simply can't imagine the way the world is. It's the way it's always been and the way it's always going to be. But we should, in our own personal lives and in our communal lives, say, well, what do we really want? What is it that we, you know, it's not just that we came here and got stuck here and we leave. What is it that, how do we want to co-create with God? How do we want to, be not just subjects uh, of divine authority, but participants in this magnificent, um, you know, immense universal uh, story that's unfolding. And so, the, so what we do—it's uh, not a particularly religious show—but I, I invited various clergy, and we talk about these fundamental issues of moral values and commitment, and then how they play out in our systemic racism and our relentless failure to address poverty and our failure to provide housing and uh, health care, which obviously is something I know I've experienced quite a bit. So it's designed, in the same way we talked about at the beginning, to offer a moment for us to step back from all the reasons things can't happen and say, well, let's worry about what can or can't happen later. Let's ask the the aspirational question first. Who do we want to be? What do we want our world to become? What is the world we want to create? And so you can find it at creatingtheworldwewant.org. It's also on Apple Music. It's on um, it's on Spotify. And, you know, we're just setting it off the ground. So I hope uh, people will uh, investigate it, and hopefully it will be um, something even bigger in a couple of years, if, if, that, if that's what's meant to be. You've certainly given us good food for thought, and I'm really going to encourage people to go there. When I picked up the phone and called you uh, a week or two ago asking if you'd do this podcast, there was a lot of things that I did not know about. But the very first thing you said to me was, you were turning 64, and it reminded you of Henry, because, of course, Henry, that was the length of his life. And I found it interesting when I looked in your story that you wrote on bef- within Befriending Life, you wrote about how you had asked Henry because you didn't anticipate that you might have a long life. You were concerned because you know what it was to have health challenges. So you'd asked Henry if he would pass on to your children what your faith had meant to you, if he'd make it real to them, and he promised he would do that. And then you literally lost him in a moment that you had played a good part in as well. Way back in 1986, you were the one, you and your family were the one that brought Henry to Russia, where he apparently mm-hmm. spent days in front of the return of the prodigal son. And uh, I think your mother had a good part in making sure that uh, he was allowed to stay there with his own chair and he, he could study it. And we all know that out of that came... Uh, probably the most powerful book that Henry wrote, The Return of the Prodigal Son, or the most most popular one. But I, I'm just curious, here you are now at this point. You played an important role in Henry's life. It's not just that he played a role in your life. You know, there, that is good friendship, isn't it? I mean, it's that, that you inspired each other and you led each other forward. But here at 64, this is an important moment. What would you say now? <laughs> Well, the first thing I'd say is thanks be to God. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, because of the injections from hemophilia, I was exposed to the HIV virus, as you 
uh, as you mentioned, very early in 1978, before even people knew there was such a thing. But we know this because they kept samples that they tested many years later. So I almost died of HIV, but I didn't. And then I almost died of liver disease, hepatitis C, and I didn't. And I, you know, there are many other challenges where I've come close to uh, passing through that door that, that awaits all of us. And, um, but it's true, just statistically, it seemed unlikely that I was going to live much beyond, you know, I thought I might have, at that time, I might have 10 or 15 more years or maybe radically less. So I remember we were sitting together, sitting in the car parked outside of the Larsh community, and we were talking and we were about to plunge into something where he'd be talking all the time and our trip going to close. And I said, Henry, there is a, I do have a request. And I had uh, two young sons at the time. And I said, would you speak to them about my faith? Because I think you understand it and, um, in a way that few other people do. And I may not be able to communicate that. And he, you know, it was a wonderful, very personal moment. And he vowed to do it. And then he died like a year or two later. And it was, I was actually sitting in church when somebody gave thanks for the life of Henry Mellon. And I was like, what? I just talked to him. Um, so that sense that, you know, I guess the, the sense is that the gifts that were given and the time that were given, there's an element of finitude in everything. You only have so much time and you only eat so many meals. I mean, there's you only know so many people. So each thing is, is precious and Henry was um, wonderful in, in talking about things like gratitude. And a lot of what he said about gratitude is about maintaining a sense of surprise in the world that we live in. Being able to see, through, you know, we, want, we often talked about, you know, you have uh, eyes that you do not see and ears that you do not hear. Um, Henry so much wanted us all to wake up to those sounds and voices and those images and, and, and the beauty of the world. And um, so I do feel, and I, as you do and so many others who have come to care about Henry, that, you know, it's in some ways very much like Jesus, although Henry would be kind of shocked if I said that, but, you know, that he had to leave so that we could take up what is our piece of this and then become advocates in the world for for the, the underlying reality and personality of God. I mean, we're talking about things that human languages doesn't really work. But, so thank you for raising that. It was a very important moment in my life, and it was a tragic moment in the sense that we experienced a reversal that obviously neither one of us anticipated. But, as I say, you know, I'm turning 54 in August, and, um, you know, now I get to think of what the rich life I was given, and I miss and mourn Henry a great deal. But I had my time with him, and I we still have his books, and he's not the only person who has been a guide and mentor. And, you know, I've reached the point where I think it's okay for me even to be proud that I have offered things to other people, as you said. It wasn't just about him changing me. I think I did have an effect on him. And then all the things that I've learned from him have become part of my preaching and how I try to live, even though I fail at it. But um, so anyway, thank you for raising it. I mean, Henry, meeting Henry helped define my faith and underscore that my the gifts that God had given to me were not to be held on to just for my own private use, that they were meant, they were offered to me precisely so I could offer them back. And I've lived enough of my life to feel like, well, occasionally I've actually done that. And that gives me a sense of peace. Bob, I just thank you. I think that I think that is so rich. I really do because I think that's. I, I hope that others, as they listen right now, are going to say that's what it's about. That's that's the heart of it. It's been inspiring. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, and thank you to all the people who are listening. And just want to say again, do not be afraid. We're surrounded by the great love of God, and we can be windows to which we perceive that in each other. And you know, there's discouraging moments and moments of great pain, but in the end, we live in a life blessed by the power 
uh, and the love of God. And what could be a greater gift than that? Thank you, Bob. This has been good. I've really enjoyed talking with you. And I, I've learned a lot about Henry. I've learned a lot about you. And I think in the midst of it, I've learned a lot about God. And uh, n- to be less fearful and probably more courageous to, to take on those things that we're called to. That's, that is also what I take away from today. We do thank you for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Bob Massey. He had so many good and valuable, hard-earned truths to pass on to us. If you did enjoy it, please share it with friends and family, and we would be grateful if you'd give us a good review or a thumbs up. For more resources related to today's episode, click on the links on the podcast page of our website. You can find additional content and other related materials, including books to get you started if you're not familiar with the writings of Henry Nouwen, or you may wish to send for Befriending Life, Encounters with Henry Nouwen. Thanks for listening. Until next time.